Last week, we took the time to go through uh, an equation of sorts and then uh, concluded with another equation. This is a refresher. We talked about the bad news at length last week. The bad news is the fact that God's righteousness plus our sinfulness equals our punishment. And then to not leave you hanging, uh, because we are a church that preaches the gospel, which is the good news, uh, introduced another equation at the outset of that, hopefully something that's stuck in your mind this week. There's good news as well. And the good news is, kind of continuing that theme, right? So it's God's righteousness plus our sinfulness equals our punishment. The good news is that our sinfulness plus something equals our salvation. As I mentioned last week, really the answer to that blank is either our sinfulness plus our religion equals our salvation or our sinfulness plus God's grace equals our religion, our religion, our salvation. Reading ahead in my notes. Uh, So when I say our religion, what I mean by that is something that's in me or from me or done by me. That's what religion has in common. Coming before God with something that's in me or something that's coming from me or something that's done by me. That's what religion is. Here's what I have to offer to God. Or our sinfulness plus God's grace equals our salvation, which is the opposite of something in me or from me or done by me. Instead, it's God intervening on my behalf. Every variety of Christianity that I can think of, and there are many, not all of them true varieties of Christianity, but every variety that I can think of would reject number one, and wholeheartedly affirm number two. Nobody that says, uh, we're a Christian, would say like, oh yeah, yeah, my sinfulness plus my religion, that equals my salvation. Right? That's, that's just anti-Christian. I mean, how could anyone who claims to believe uh, or to follow the Bible do otherwise? Ephesians 2.5, I hope that you were able to spend some time in that text. I was not able to spend as much time as I had hoped to uh, this week in this text, but I trust you looked at it. If not, don't worry, it's still in your Bible. You could do it this week. But in Ephesians 2.5, it says, clear as day, by grace, you have been saved. And contrasts that with our efforts, our works, our religion. So our sinfulness, so this is the truth. In case you were, like, didn't see that I tried to lay it out clearly what the good news was last week. It, the religion was not true, right? It's our sinfulness plus God's grace equals our salvation. If only that were the only information that I needed to give you. Look at the text. Grace, you have been saved. Let's pray and go to the table, and you can beat every other church to lunch this week for once. Not happening. Uh, Because there is more clarification needed, more information. The history of Christianity, 2,000 years of it, has proven, and, and beyond, proven that we need further clarification on what saved by grace actually means. And this clarification is what sola gratia, grace alone, provides for us. Working our way through those five solas. It's going to be five in five weeks. That didn't happen. Uh, 
Amen at six weeks, and we'll see. Sola gratia, Latin phrase, grace alone, coming out of that Protestant Reformation. I have some gifts that I want to give out. I don't normally do giveaways because it's weird. I have a Risen King coffee mug. And you can have this Risen King coffee mug if you show me that you brought your Bible today. Who wants Cole Shannon? Come on up, grab your coffee mug. The brother brought his Bible. That's good stuff. Let's just give him a hand. He's going to have to walk up here. I don't know why he needs to clap, but that's what we're, that's what we're doing. Here you go. And uh, brand new with box. Thanks for bringing your Bible today. That's good. That's good. I've got another coffee mug. And you can have this coffee mug if you just come up and get it. Hey, <laughs> Noah, Noah, I, I choose you, Thank you to have this coffee mug. I choose you. Hey, Jenna. I want you to have this coffee mug. I believe I was generous in all three of those scenarios. But only one of them comes close to reflecting the grace that God shows us in salvation. Sola gratia, grace alone, answers the question, why does God save us? It's a matter of, of motivation, a matter of his, his thinking, as it were, trying to understand the mind of God is like, well, who could understand the mind of the Lord? Well, if he reveals it to us, we can. Why does God save us? And any answer shy of grace, real grace, free grace, any answer that falls short of that falls short of the gospel and falls short of the glory of God in salvation. As I said at the outset of last week's sermon, our understanding of the breadth and depth, uh, Gerald pointed that out. There. We, we can understand, boy, I have a lot of it, but we don't understand how deep it is. So that was a good way of putting that. Our understanding of the breadth and depth of our sinfulness is like a crossroads in our understanding of salvation. If a person has a correct, and by correct I mean biblical, understanding of the topic of their own sinfulness as part of humanity's sinfulness. If you have a correct understanding of that, I believe other doctrines will necessarily follow if we're thinking biblically and logically, because it's not like we're contrary to logic as we come to scripture. We don't, we don't put our logic ahead of scripture. We submit that too, but God is a God of logic right? And so things do naturally follow. If you get sinfulness right and there is salvation, then there are certain things that must follow. If you get it wrong, you're, you're automatically heading in the wrong direction. This is a foundation. So last week, this righteousness of God contrasted with the sinfulness of humanity, and that includes you and me, that sets you on a course that if you're going to have salvation, it requires intervention from God. Now, here's a point that I think is important. Less 
than total depravity, which is that understanding of sinfulness that we talked about last week. Less than total depravity requires less than grace alone in salvation. Less than total depravity requires less than grace alone. And we could flip that to say, you know, less than grace alone. Like salvation that is less than grace alone, alone, reveals a doctrine of less than total depravity. Really just the same thing, kind of flip, but it worked both, works both ways. Total depravity is biblical. 30 minutes last week. Uh, an hour a few years ago, and what, brother, eight hours in Uganda? Right? We could talk total depravity, beginning to the end. You hit Genesis 3, and you move on to the end, and sin just punches you in the gut over and over and over again. Total depravity is biblical. Grace alone is biblical. And grace alone crescendos to the glory of God alone. And that is certainly biblical. From him to him, through him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And he says, I will not share my glory with anyone else, with another. Total depravity, biblical, grace alone, biblical, glory of God alone. Let's look at this idea of, of what less than grace alone might look like. The Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century and before and since would agree with the equation that I put in front of you, both that God's righteousness plus our sinfulness equals our punishment and our sinfulness plus God's grace equals our salvation. They would say God's grace is absolutely necessary for our salvation. But as with the other four in this mini-series, the issue is with the soul apart. Grace? Yes. Grace alone? No. That's the Roman Catholic position. And that's not just like a... a I'm saying that and they wouldn't, right? Like, they would admit that. Oh, no, 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 not grace alone. Here's my understanding of the Roman Catholic position as I've looked at that a little bit. God graciously offers you a way to be worthy of salvation. That might strike us as like, whoa, whoa, whoa nobody would believe that. that. That is the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. God graciously, there's God's grace and salvation. God graciously offers a way for you to be worthy of salvation. How? Through the seven sacraments of the church. Through the seven sacraments administered by the church, baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, penance, anointing of the sick, marriage, and holy orders, through those things, you can receive God's grace to remove your sin. Removal of the stain of sin in baptism for an infant, and then you keep sinning. Uh, then you confirmation. There's these ways to be restored by God's grace, restored to a place of worthiness. When you fall because of sin, penance can bring you back up, keeps you above the surface, makes you worthy of salvation because nobody could have salvation that is not worthy of salvation. That's their position. This, by their own admission, is grace plus merit. Grace plus merit. You must make proper use of the grace that God has made available to you. And here's the thing. You, you must balance the scale of sin and grace 
right? You need to balance that, right? He, 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 your, your parents got you in a good place to that getting you baptized as an infant in the Roman Catholic Church. And you start to sin, it starts to balance down and then confirmation and then it goes down and then you go before the priest to penance and this many Hail Marys and this many Our Fathers and this many, uh, this much money and this many uh, times of coming to the Mass, all these things, it just starts to balance the scale and boy, I hope that the scale's balanced in your favor by the time that you die. You fall short of the grace of God. You failed to make proper use of the means that he put in front of you. Here's the thing, you can call it grace, you can call it merit all you want, but if it sounds like works and it looks like works and it feels like works, it is salvation by works. And Paul distinguishes grace and works in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of, of works. Did you hear his definition of grace there? You're saved by grace. And what does grace look like? It looks like not works. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Paul writes again in Titus 3.5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And while mercy and grace are distinguishable, not that distinguishable, right? It's like God's kindness to the, to the weak and needy in mercy, to the undeserving in grace. Roman Catholic Church overestimates a sinful human, human's ability to live a life that is pleasing to God. Less than total depravity requires less than grace alone in salvation. You know, the first scenario a few minutes ago when Cole came up to get the coffee mug, he had to have his Bible with him in order to get it. That gift was not according to grace alone because he had to do something. And he did something religious to gain that. Cole and I kind of worked together. Yeah, without beforehand, like, that was just a f- free choice, right? <clears throat> according, it was not according to grace alone. If it isn't by grace alone, you have added works into the mix. It really is as simple as that. But Paul says we are saved by grace, not a result of works. But the Roman Catholic position is not the only teaching in Christianity that falls short of grace alone. There's another version of grace alone in salvation that falls short of grace alone, or teaching about the gospel that comes short of grace alone in salvation. It's very, very popular. You know, maybe none of you, I know a few of you maybe grew up uh, with some Roman Catholicism mixed in. Um, uh, This isn't a heavily dominated Roman Catholic area, but this next is like the default position in modern evangelicalism. Very popular way of thinking about salvation affirms that God graciously offers salvation to unworthy sinners. And if I were to let you just think about that for a while, you'd be like, yeah, he, he does. And, and you'd be right. <laughs> there's, there's no trick in this. God does graciously offer salvation to unworthy sinners. So far, so good. And what is the offer 
of the gospel. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's gracious. Now, what's the promise of the gospel? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Or come to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Or Jesus crying out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. There is grace offered to unworthy sinners in the gospel. God graciously offers salvation to unworthy sinners. Yes, but that's not all that he does. That is not the only statement that we can say about God's grace and salvation. That's that's the point. The offer of the gospel is not the full extent of God's grace demonstrated in salvation. There is so much more. We could ask it this way. Is God's grace limited to merely offering to pay for people's sins? Is that it? We get, get knocked for, for limited atonement. I, have, I take issue with limited grace in salvation. Those that would say, yes, that's it. God's grace limited to merely offering to pay for people's sins. We can call this position Arminianism, named after Jacob Arminius, who lived and taught in Holland in the 16th and 17th centuries. But it is held by far more than those who would identify themselves as Arminians, right? So, oh, I don't want to be labeled a Calvinist or labeled a Arminian, labeled an Augustinian, labeled a semi-Pelagian, not just other authors and and writers throughout church history that taught different positions of this. But whether you call yourself an Arminian or not, or even know what that means, this is standard fair evangelicalism, especially in America. This idea, God and man cooperate in salvation. There's God and there's me. Me and God, team effort, resulting in salvation. God makes the offer and leaves each person to accept or reject it with no intervening. No intervening, just lots of pleading, lots of persuading, maybe some threatening. But is that really how Scripture presents God's grace in salvation? God just sort of putting it out there, stepping back, and just being like, come on, come on, please. You know, some, sometimes it's... it's the God of Scripture, it's like as if he was on his knees pleading for you to come. God is not on his knees pleading for you to come, right? That, that flips worship to where like he needs you. Let's just rewind, what, a month, month and a half ago to the immutability or the sovereign transcendence of God if you need to be reminded that God does not need you. You need him. He does not need you. You know, we've talked a lot about grace so far this morning. But I've yet to define grace. That's what I want to do. I want to do that and answer the question, what is grace? By defining it and also demonstrating it to you from scripture. So grace alone or true grace, because if it's less than grace alone, I would say it's actually not grace. But grace alone defined and demonstrated. 
Uh, we'll start off with definitions. I learned as a child, grace is God's giving me a free gift I don't deserve. That's a good definition. Uh, can't, can't necessarily do better than that, but I could also do different than that and work at it a couple different angles to get there. But I'll just say that again in case you missed that. What is grace? Grace is God giving to me a free gift, which if it's not free, it's not a gift, Right? giving me a free gift I don't deserve. You know, we can also understand this as some have defined grace as undeserved favor. You know, it's interesting. That I don't think that quite gets all the way to it. It's like, that's true, but it's not just undeserved favor. I, I kind of made up a word, anti-deserved favor, right? It's not like, oh, I didn't do anything to earn it and I ended up in a neutral position. Actually, it's you're in the wrong direction right? You're in, you're not neutral, you're in debt. Anti-deserved favor. And one passage that helps us see the difference between deserved and undeserved, actually it starts off with like undeserved and then deserved and then anti-deserved is Romans chapter 5 verses 6 through 8. You're quick at flipping, you can join me, I'll read it for you. Romans 5, 6 through 8. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. We could insert innocent person there. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I just quickly, this isn't the text I want to spend most of my time in today. But I remember studying this several years ago. I probably have used this before, but kind of trying to understand those different categories. Paul talks about the righteous person, the good person, and then the sinner. Just remember an illustration that was given. You know, the righteous person is somebody who's innocent of a crime, but yet declared guilty. You're, you're 100% convinced that they're innocent. But you know what? You're also 100% innocent of that crime. So it's not right for them to go be executed for this, but you're not going to step in their place because you didn't do it either. Right? So that righteous person who doesn't deserve that punishment, you're not going to step in because you are also righteous. That's not going to happen. That, that will scarcely happen. You know, maybe there's a scenario, but it's not very likely. And then the illustration that was given for that good person, somebody who's of value. It's like a secret service agent would step in front of a bullet for the president because he has value right, in his office and in his role. So for a good person, somebody who has something to contribute, some would even dare to die. But are we innocent? No. Are we valuable to the kingdom of God? No. We are enemies. We are, we are guilty and opposing him. As, as if the kingdom would move along better if we were pushed out of the way. Like our sentence would actually, and the punishment would actually seem to advance the righteousness of God's kingdom, not hinder it. Now, which are we? Are we innocent? No. Are we valuable? No, we're sinners. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are anti-deserving of salvation. God's grace is a free gift, freely given. He has never been obligated in any way to give anything that he has given. God does not owe you or me or anyone anything good. Did you hear that? God 
does not owe you anything. He has never been obligated in any way to give what he has given. And further, having chosen to give, he is not obligated to give his gifts to anyone in particular or to everyone. There's no obligation on God's part when it comes to his generosity. He is free to do with his own what he wants. Free, unconstrained by anything else, unconstrained to give. You know, more specific definition of God's grace would be this. God's grace is God's free choice to save selected sinners. We're going we're gonna to center in on this. Like, oh, he doesn't mean that. I do mean that. God's grace is God's free choice to save selected sinners, certain ones, not everyone. He is acting to help those who cannot help themselves. But we're not just helpless to change. In our sinfulness, we are opposed to changing. We are continuing in our enmity against God. It's not like we were like, oh, that's, that was a wrong decision. Like, what, what am I doing in opposing God? I should stop. And then God says, okay, yes. No, we're, we're, we're headlong in it. Love the illustration of Paul, right? Do you think Paul, like, saw the time, Hebrew name, Greek name, talked about that before, right? Not like a Christians have to change their name sort of thing. Saul, on the road to Damascus, breathing out threats and hatred, like he's looking forward to getting to Damascus to arrest Christians for the crime of worshiping Jesus. And he's thinking about the ways to do it, and he's glad to do it, and he's moving headlong as quickly as he can. It's not like he stopped at the side of the road. It's like, huh, you know, maybe there is something to this Jesus thing. No, because he's still surprised when Jesus appears to him. This is like, what are you doing opposing me? And he's like, who, who are you that I'm opposing? Like, what are you talking about? I'm Jesus. Uh-oh. That's not good. Right? God stopped him in the tracks of his pursuit of opposing the gospel. That's what happens to us, whether it's as stark as it was with Saul or whether it's not, it's still truly that much of a difference is being made. We are opposed to changing in our sinfulness. We are blind to the perfection of God's righteousness. We are blind to the seriousness of our sin. And we are blind to the eternal punishment that is coming. But God is not blind to these things. He knows what we deserve, yet he freely takes the initiative to act on our behalf to save us. God has freely or graciously chosen to save selected sinners. Last week pointed you to Ephesians 2, 1 through 9, so you could hear from God's mouth, the word, hear from God's mouth your sinfulness and how it is met by God's grace. And Paul beautifully demonstrates that same grace in what I hope is another familiar text from Ephesians. I think we read this two weeks ago as part of our gathering. Would you take your Bible, would you turn to Ephesians chapter 1 and spend the rest of our time in Ephesians chapter 1 so that we can see God's grace, not just defined, we can see it demonstrated. God telling us what his grace has done for sinners. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of of his glory. As we read this together, I'm confident that if you were paying attention, you saw that salvation is completely flooded with God's grace. Salvation is completely flooded with God's grace. Did you, did you hear in that? If you didn't, I could read it again or you could read it on your own. Did you hear in that who was acting and who was receiving? Who is the subject of all of these things that were taking place and who is the object? God is acting. You are receiving. Now, just in case it was like, no, I didn't see that. That's okay. Spelled out for you. God is the one acting in our salvation out of his grace for his glory and we are recipients of those things. How can you read this text and walking away thinking that God's grace is limited to the offer of salvation? That that's it. Hey, I put it out there for you. Do with it what you will. But it's, it's good. I mean, you should. My hands are off. That's not what the text says. God's grace, I said it again, I said it twice, I think. God's grace completely floods salvation from beginning to end. And there are, there are at least three movements in the sections of these things. First, that God the Father graciously plans, graciously plans our salvation. We see Paul blessing or praising, worshiping the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for a choice that God made. In verse four, do you see it? Why is he worshiping? Because he chose us in him, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. This is a clear statement of the doctrine of unconditional election. That's big words. What is that talking about? Same thing that I've been doing, that God made a free choice, that God made a selection, that God chose us 
in him. The choice in eternity past. Where, did he, where does that come from? He chose us when? You say it. Before the foundation or the creation of the world. God's free choice in eternity past of which sinners he would save. Many people get angry about this. Many reject it as evil or unfair. Paul, on the other hand, finds it a theme fit for worship. Are we a people of sola scriptura? Is scripture alone our authority? Or are we going to subject it to what we feel is right? When we think of election, we think of voting for our government officials. There's a selection process, and that makes sense, but don't think of this as like a popularity contest. It's far, far from it. Don't think of this as if, you know, God went through the roles of all of humanity, and the, and the Father cast a ballot, and the Son cast a ballot, and the Spirit cast a ballot. And if, if you had a majority, or if, if you had a unanimous vote, then you, then you went in. It's like, it's absurd. It's like the Father and the Son like you, but the Spirit doesn't, like... It doesn't, make, it doesn't make any sense. The, the Trinity perfectly unified in all that it does. When you hear of election, you can just think of selection. God selecting or choosing which sinners he will show grace to. Later in verses four, later on in verse four and then into verse five, we learn another term where it says, in love, he, so God, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So we have a different word pointing to the same truth as above. We talked about election. Now we're talking about predestination. That's not a hard word to to understand. Uh, Pre means before, right? Predecessor, predecessor, the one who came before whoever's there right now. This is a prefix, prefix, word part that comes before whatever the other word is. So pre, pre means before destination has to do with the end or goal that will be accomplished. You have a destination when you're traveling somewhere. This is, this is where we're going. This is what I'm aiming at. God decided beforehand what would take place in the lives of the sinners that he had chosen or elected? God decided beforehand. And according to this verse, God determined ahead of time in eternity past that certain sinners would be adopted to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. It focuses on sons here. It doesn't say sons and daughters because in the Roman world in which they lived, uh, daughters didn't inherit, only sons inherited. So if you're like, you're adopted as a daughter, be like, not really a whole lot of benefit. Now, our culture doesn't work that way. Like, my daughters aren't like sub, uh, what, subclass uh, children. This is like, oh, finally, I have, I have James, so somebody can inherit something, because otherwise, I don't know, I don't even have any brothers. I'm not sure who it would have gone to, maybe some uncle or something like that. Uh, that's just how their culture worked. Be like, oh, we hate other cultures. It's like, just back off, okay? Stop being a snob. Just different cultures work different ways. Our culture, we can say sons and daughters means the same thing, but that's why it focuses on sonship here. That's, that, was, that part's for free. God determined ahead of time certain sinners would be adopted to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. Sometimes people might ask, do you believe in predestination? Well, here it is in the Bible, uh, plain as day, uh, but I hope you don't just believe in it. Do I believe in predestination? Yes, 
Every Christian would believe in some form of it, redefining some aspects of it. But I don't want to just believe in predestination. I don't want you to just believe in predestination. I hope you love it like Paul loved it. Like Paul saw it as a theme fit for worship. That God had predestined him to adoption as a son through Jesus Christ. Election and predestination are using Paul's words according to the purpose of his or God's will in verse 5. These things are according to the purpose of his will. God's will here is not just what he hopes will happen, what he wants to happen. It's what he has planned or ordained to happen. This is God's sovereignty that we're talking about. Like we talked about last month, God is in sovereign utter control over all of creation, all of history, and all of salvation. So many Christians are like, all of creation? Yes, God's creator. He's the one who sends the rain. He knows about birds. He knows about hair. Yeah, all of creation. God is in complete control over these things. All of history? Yeah, nations rise and fall. He talks about it happening beforehand. Uh, He's involved with Pharaoh. I raised you up so I could tear you down. Yes, I raised up Cyrus. I raised up the Roman emperors for these things. Yeah, God's in control of all of history. Who's the, who's the president, this president, next president, last president? God's in control of all of it. Yes, wow, God is so big. He's so powerful. He's so sovereign. Uh, but about salvation? No, nope. He really is just hands off on that. It just doesn't make any sense. Right? The most important thing in all of the universe God is not in control of? Why has God acted in this way, Paul? Why? Why has he blessed us and chose us? Why does he love us and predestine us for adoption? Why has he done this? Why is this his will? Do you see it? He gives us the reason. Verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace. God chose each believer who would be saved in Christ because it displays the glory of God's grace. God predestined, he decided beforehand who would be his adopted son or daughter because it displays the glory of his grace. We've talked about election. We've talked about predestination. There's another scriptural term that's often used to talk about the same topic. Anybody guess what the other word is? I don't have a coffee mug for you. I gave away all the ones that I had. Election, predestination. What's the third one? Starts with an F. Foreknowledge. The foreknowledge of God. It's not in this passage here in Ephesians. It's in another beautiful passage about God's sovereignty over our salvation. In Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. Another passage I'm sure you know, at least parts of. You should know all of it. Well, the whole Bible. Like predestined, you can understand the word foreknowledge by breaking it into two parts. For, F-O-R-E, and knowledge. For is just a shortened version of before. has nothing to do with golf. Has a shortened version of before, kind of like the pre in predestined. So we start to see some connections between these two terms. And knowledge or knowing can mean a lot of different things. This is a broad term for knowing. Well, what are some ways in which we can know? I know my address. It's facts. 
I know how to make good coffee. The process. I know your names, most of you, hopefully all of you. Let's not have a quiz on that. I know who your kids or grandkids are. There's a familiarity to that. I also know my friends. Those are the people that are closer to me. I know my kids. There's a relationship element to that. And all of these are legitimate forms of knowing. None of them comes close, though, to one relationship, the intimate, personal way that I know my wife, Leanne. That's another way that the Bible uses the word knowing to refer to the physical intimacy of a marriage relationship. Adam knew Eve. It wasn't just like, oh, nice to meet you. Isaac knew Rebecca. Joseph did not know Mary until after she had given birth to Jesus. Hey, who's that woman with you with the baby? <laughs> not sure. Just picked her up on the side of the road, thought I'd be nice. Not what that means. I mention this because I hope it helps us to see, you know, it's like the opposite end of the spectrum of that fact thing, right? Like knowing facts, like who really cares about my address? And then you swing over to the other side to see that knowing in the Bible can be used at the closest of intimate relationships in all of creation, unmatched by anything else, except that it's a picture that points us to our relationship with Christ. I want us to see the close personal love that can be wrapped up in the simple word knowledge. For knowledge as it relates to salvation is not God knowing facts about someone or being broadly or generically familiar with someone. For knowing is for loving. It's for choosing. Really the same as that pre destining. Christian, before God created the world, he chose to love you. He didn't just know that you would exist. He decided to make you his child. Before let there be light, he said, let that one by name. Let that one be mine. There's a common alternative way of viewing foreknowledge using this phrase. Probably have heard it. God looked down the corridors of time to see who would choose to accept his offer in the gospel. And having seen how this would play out, having seen the result the effect is, well, not effects. Having seen what would happen, he then chose them or determined to love or adopt them. That is not God choosing. That is God recognizing. And there's a big difference. In the second scenario, when Noah came up and took the coffee mug, I don't know if you caught what I said, but I told him, do you remember what I said to you? What did I say? Yeah, I choose you to have this. But did I? Because if you were paying attention, it looked a whole lot like Noah chose to come and get it. I mean, he jumped up here quick. Like, he's, he's like, there are more of those. Like, I've already got my Bible if he's doing it again. And I'm on that. Did I really choose him? I chose to give something. That was nice. But I didn't choose who got it. That is less than election. And that is less than grace alone. If our election is contingent 
on our choice, our choice, then it is not really a choice on God's part. But the text says, it was like, oh, oh not, but Calvin says, but Augustine says, but Luther says, but Piper says, but MacArthur says, but Peter Ambler says, nope. What does the text say? It says God chose us. This is only one text of many that we could look at in both the Old and New Testaments. God has always acted toward his people based on his sovereign love in election. That's the difference between those who are his people and those who are not. Only some sinners have been graciously chosen by God as the objects of his eternal love. Only some. All have sinned, and some of those who all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God are chosen as God's special recipients of grace, affection, and love from eternity past into eternity future. God's grace is not limited to the offer of the gospel. His grace toward us began in eternity past when he graciously planned our salvation, and then it continues where God the Son graciously pays for our salvation. This is the next whole paragraph that he has, starting in verse 7 and moving on. In verse 7, God's beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, has paid for our salvation. In him, we have redemption through his blood, Cross work of Christ is an act of God's grace. This redemption or deliverance from our sinfulness, from our punishment, was accomplished through Christ's blood, his death on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. God's choice and election is grace. Christ's death on the cross is grace, grace that secured the forgiveness of our trespasses. God, who knows all things, knows the full breadth and depth of our sinfulness. He knows more about your sin than you will ever know. He is the righteous judge, remember from last week? Nothing has escaped his notice. Not one sin will escape his judgment. But for his people, those who trust in his son, what did we confess together today? Every single sin was paid for on the cross. No debt remains. All is forgiven. It's God's grace through Christ's death on the cross for his people. What could possibly compel or motivate God to act toward us like this? I'll be honest with you. I've always been rather fond of myself from as early as I could think about myself, I thought I was funny, and I thought I was handsome, and I thought I was charming. I didn't say I was realistic. But it's true, my parents, my sisters, all of us know that's the case about me. But even I know, it's painfully obvious, I do not deserve this kind of treatment. I'm That very vanity shows my lack of desert. You think about what Christ did on the cross and you're going to look yourself in the eye in the mirror and be like, yep, makes sense that the eternal son of God would take on a human nature, would live a life of suffering in perfection 
and then offer himself as a sacrifice to be brutally murdered and worse, bear the wrath of God for my sin? That makes no sense at all. I do not deserve that. There is no reason that God should be nice to me at all. I don't deserve the oxygen in my lungs. Rain should not fall on my yard. And if my salvation was contingent on the worthiness of my faith, I still would not qualify. My heart consistently resonates with the man who told Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. I am not worthy of salvation. Why would God choose me? (laughs) He tells us, thankfully, there's no other reason. He tells us in verse 7, why would he offer his son as redemption through his blood? Because he's rich in grace. He did this according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Nothing can compare to this. This is an unfathomable, unthinkable gift. And how dare we taint it by inserting a misplaced sense of our worthiness into the equation? My sinfulness plus God's grace and my choice to believe equals my salvation? Are there strong enough words to oppose it? May it never be, Paul says in Romans about similar erroneous statements. King James translated that, God forbid. It gets the point across. That I would insert something about me slipping in in the back end, claiming 10%, 5%, 1%, 0.001%. A whole lot of God, a little bit of me. No. To insist on your independent ability to choose Christ and accept his gracious offer in the gospel is to reject what scripture teaches about your sinfulness and to reject grace alone and salvation. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. You did not come to God for salvation. God came to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. No one comes unless the Father has drawn. You don't get credit for this. And what Christian wants that credit? Like really, you imagine heaven and it's like a joint celebration. It's like me and God, we saved me. No, no Christian believes that. No Christian feels that. That's not what the Spirit testifies in us. I have a whole other point, a whole other sermon. I didn't even bother finish writing it out because I knew I wouldn't have time. But God, the Holy Spirit, graciously applies salvation to us. He applies salvation, regenerating work. Read about it in John 3. Read about it in John 6. Read about it in Romans 8. We could discuss the Spirit's ongoing work of grace and sanctifying us. It's not like grace only gets us to the moment of salvation and then it just sort of tapers off. God's grace continues to abound toward us as we're gradually transformed into the image of Christ. And it's not like we get toward the end of our life or all the way through the end of our life and then grace is done. 
Because God, we look forward with hope to when Christ returns and God graciously glorifies us. When we see Christ, we will be made like him. Every remnant and stain of sin, fallenness will be eradicated and replaced with glory. God's grace abounds toward unworthy sinners. Objections abound to the grace of God being demonstrated in his sovereign uninfluenced choice of his people. And one objection says that it makes salvation arbitrary, makes salvation fatalistic. It's like, well, what does it matter then? Far from it. I don't know how you could look at election played out in the pages of scripture or taught about by Jesus or Paul or Peter or John and think that it's arbitrary that it's distant, that it's fatalistic. Election is specific. Election is personal, as is all of salvation. I've said it before. I'll say it again. God chose you by name. Christ died for your sins, every one of them. And the Holy Spirit worked to call you by name to Christ. It's a great quote. I saw attributed to like three different people. All I'll say is it's not original to me. Actually, that's a later quote. But here's one of this fatalistic idea. You had God merely provided salvation for everybody and then stepped back to let the chips fall where they may. That would have been fatalism. That would be an impersonal aspect of salvation. But God reaching down into the cesspool of humanity and picking me out of it and being like, I'm going to glorify myself in your life. That's personal. And that's what grace does. Earlier I read from Romans 5, 6 to 8. It's a text which emphasizes our unworthiness. Paul highlights God's love for unworthy sinners shown in Christ's death for unworthy sinners. So we could expand this passage to rightly say, while we were still sinners, the Father graciously chose us. While we were still sinners, Christ graciously died for us. While we were still sinners, the Holy Spirit called us to salvation. You know, we could say, while we were still sinners, Christ kept us and brought us to glorification and then finished our transformation. Salvation is all of God and all of grace. And here's the quote that's not from me. The only thing I contributed to my salvation was the sin that made it necessary. Let's pray. God, you are gracious. Convince me more and more of your grace, I pray. Convince all who have heard your word this morning. Convince them of their unworthiness and your, your abundant grace to unworthy sinners. Salvation is grace, your grace from beginning to the end. And we thank you for it. And we want to worship you for it. As we come to your table uh, to taste of the grace of, grace of Christ and his offering of himself, uh, that be some t- a time where we say with Paul, blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation that we have but do not deserve. Amen.